Hi, Dave Emmer here. This is for the record program number 1268. Interview number seven with Jim Eugenio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on October 19th of the year 2022. And once again, it is my pleasure and my privilege to bring back to our airwaves Jim Eugenio, the author of, among other titles, Destiny Betrayed, which we uh, laid out in 25 one-hour interviews in 2018 and 2019. Also the author of the book, JFK Revisited, and the man selected by director Oliver Stone to write the screenplay for his recent documentary, JFK Revisited. Jim, welcome back once again to our airways. Nice to be here, Dave. Well, as I'm speaking on October 19th of 2022, the focal point of this interview, uh, or one of the major focal points, could not be more timely. Jim, why don't you explain a lawsuit that was filed today by the Mary Farrell Foundation, and uh, we'll use that as something of a transition, a point of entry, into our discussion of the ARRB. I do want to recap the genesis of the ARRB for our audience. But tell us about this lawsuit, which I just read about today. All right. This evening, uh, as actually we're speaking in real time, uh, a group of attorneys um, who have been working for the last few months uh, not trusting that the Biden administration is going to go ahead and do what they're supposed to do, which is declassify the last 14,000 pages left over from the review board. They decided to file in your neck of the woods, uh, Northern California. All right. And the main people on the lawsuit are uh, the people who are working on it were Bill Simpich, uh, who lives up in that area. Uh, Larry Schnapp from uh, New York, uh, Mark Adamchick from Florida, okay? And there's also a fourth guy who was consulting with them, but I believe he lives in Quebec, but he does a lot of uh, litigation with American companies, Andrew Illier, all right? And they got status by putting two people who I'm sure you're familiar with because they live in that area. Uh, Tink Thompson, Josiah Tink Thompson, who wrote the book Six Seconds in Dallas and then Last Second in Dallas, and Gary Aguilar, who has done many, many powerful essays on the medical evidence in this case. And they also used the Mary Farrell Foundation which is dedicated, I'm sure you know, to put online all the declassified documents, all right? Now, to give you the background on this, in a nutshell, I'll try and make this short and simple. There was a clause in the constituting legislation for the Assassination Records and Review Board, which we've been talking about for about six shows now, the ARB, all right, uh, that if there was anything left over, anything at all, when they closed their doors, okay, if there was anything that was still not declassified, 
all right, then the sort of doomsday date was going to be in late October of 2017. In other words, if it wasn't declassified by then, it had to be classified on that date. Okay. All right. Which was about 20 years after the review board closed its doors. And as we know, President Trump was, you know, his favorite, you know, modus operandi is the tweet. And he tweeted out that he was looking forward to going ahead and declassifying the last of the JFK files. Well, he didn't. Okay. The FBI and CIA walked into the Oval Office on the very last day, the very last day they could do this. Okay. In other words, to, to show you how absurd this is, remember, the review board closed down in 98. This is late October of 2017. In other words, they had 20 years to sort through this thing. Okay. And find out, you know, exactly, you know, okay, this is going to be okay. Good to go. This is not going to be good to go. Um, this is something we're going to have to take to the National Archives and talk to them about that, et cetera. But no, they waited until the very last day. And they walk into Trump's office and he lets them in. I would have never let him in myself. I would have said, look, if you can't figure this out in 20 years, I'm not going to listen to you in the last hour. Okay. And they gave him what I call the bloody hand speech. What that means is what they usually do is they say, if you go ahead and take this step, you will be endangering our agent's life down there in Ecuador or Kenya, you know, or Thailand, etc. You will have blood on your hands and we will let the public know. All right. So this is what they usually do. And then Trump didn't say, uh, wait a minute. After 55 years, you still have an agent that was involved in the Kennedy case that's on your books. I mean, shouldn't he have retired about the 40 year mark? You know? All right. And so this is what happened. And he stopped. He didn't do it. Okay. He essentially reneged on his two week previous promise. All right. And so they, in my opinion, they were in violation of the law because the ARB law said that if you're still classifying stuff, you, the president has to write a complete definition of why he is still declassifying this material. Okay. In other words, specifically, what are the grounds you're using to delay classification after 50 years? All right. What could there possibly be? All right. And so Trump didn't do that. And I believe he was in violation of the law. So then Trump gets voted out of office without declassifying one page. He first put a six month delay on it. Then he put like a two and a half year delay on it for a total of three years. All right. And he gets voted out of office, not without resistance, like the insurrection. All right. And so Biden comes in. And everybody thought that Biden would go ahead and declassify everything. He didn't. He declassified about 1,400 pages. In other words, about one-tenth of the sum total. One-tenth. And since then, and he's had 10 or 11 months now to go ahead and announce that he's going to declassify the rest, he hasn't made any signals at all. All right. And so this group of attorneys 
uh, decided to force the issue. Okay, and so they're going in the court. I think the filing was tonight, all right? And they're going to argue that both Trump and Biden were wrong and that classification is simply now not tenable in the eyes of the law, all right? And they're going to go ahead and say everything should be declassified immediately. And, I, you know, it's, it's really a shame when you think of it, you know, that here we are in 2022, 59 years after Kennedy was killed, and the CIA and the FBI and the State Department are still resisting declassification. While the media says that, you know, it's an open and shut case, Oswald did it. Why are they resisting declassification then? You know, so it's it's really, you know, you know, I, I give a lot of credit to these guys who took it on their own time to put together this lawsuit, you know, and we'll see, you know, what happens as a result of it. Hopefully it will at least put some pressure through the media on Biden to go ahead and do the right thing. Well, we'll see whether that pressure has any effect at all. And don't get me wrong, I am certainly hoping that those documents get released and a whole the, the behavior of the press is something we will get into. It, it is discussed in JFK Revisited. But one of the, this is uh, maybe a little bit of of rumination and digression, but uh, Jim, when I read Destiny Betrayed uh, some years back, and that again was the focal point of 25 one-hour interviews that we did back in 2018 and 2019, I was amazed at how much information that I knew was there but had not become public had become public. I think the JFK assassination might be compared with a jigsaw puzzle. When you are assembling a jigsaw puzzle, there is a point in the assembly at which you can tell what the picture is about, even if you don't have a significant number of pieces in place yet. And when I read Destiny in the Parade, I was amazed at how many pieces of the puzzle that I knew were there and uh, and I knew had to be there have already come into public view. And so certainly I would like to see this lawsuit succeed. And yet what happened and to a large extent who did it is already a matter of public record. Uh, Jim, very quickly, uh, in our last talk, I noted that it was two visual events. You know, as, as uh, someone who is now in my 44th year on the air, I am struck by how much of our culture now is visual. Uh, the things that people find authoritative are YouTube videos, and <laughs> those can be quite enlightening, but you still have to uh, find out where their sources uh, get their information from. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a television program 
that led to the HSCA. Tell us about that briefly. We did talk about that in our last discussion. Well, that was the epical showing of the Zapruder film for the first time on national television back in the summer of 1975 by Geraldo Rivera and the two co-hosts of that show were Dick Gregory, the famous comedian, and Robert Groden, the photo analyst who actually put together this version of the Zapruder film that was shown. And this had a tremendous impact. Uh, I mean, I can't describe it was like, you know, a firestorm that took place nationally because everybody saw that, you know, as Groden said, Oswald's supposed to be behind Kennedy. Why does Kennedy's body and head rocket backward with tremendous force, you know, uh, to the point that he just about bounces off the back of the back seat, you know? And so this created the House Select Committee on Assassinations, all right, which was the second uh, full-out investigation of the Kennedy case. It followed right on the heels of the church committee, which were the, that was the first real investigation of the crimes of the CIA and the FBI. So this had a really good springboard to it because we had just learned, for example, about the CIA mafia plots to kill Kennedy. Excuse me, excuse me, that was a, that was a slip, but that was a Freudian slip. The CIA mafia (laughs) plots to kill Castro. All right. And we had just learned about the uh, CIA complicity in the murder of Patrice Lumumba. Okay. And so this was really a very propitious time period to go ahead and launch the HSCA. And uh, it was uh, another visual event, uh, namely the JFK film by Oliver Stone, that led to the ARRB. If you would fill again, this we, we talked about that last week. If you would review that for us, yes. Um, in his film JFK, Oliver made the climax of the film in the courtroom. Jim Garrison's screening of the Zapruder film. So in other words, if you missed it back with Geraldo Rivera, you know, uh, 16 years later, you got to see it in this film. All right. And as he says, as he has Jim Garrison played by Kevin Costner repeating back and to the left, back and to the left, as you, as he's repeating the film. All right. Then at the end of the movie, in the credits crawl at the end, there was a very powerful caption which said, the files of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, the last inquiry into the death of John F. Kennedy, have been classified until the year 2029. Now, I would say 95% of the public didn't know that. Okay. And so they got up in arms and they staged a kind of citizen protest and letters and faxes and telegrams and phone calls 
went into Washington. And that kind of forced them to write this extraordinary bill constituting what is called the Assassination Records Review Board. And what this did is it gave a five-man and one, excuse me, a four-man and one-woman citizens panel the opportunity to go ahead and declassify what ended up being close to two million pages of documents, right? This was really unprecedented. And when I say that, I really mean it, okay? It was an unprecedented act, okay, which had never been done before, all right? And it ruffled a lot of feathers inside the beltway, right? And so um, people like John Thunheim, the chairman of the board, uh, in the film, he talks about this one instance where the CI liaison to the committee came in and Thunheim put on the screen a document they wanted to declassify. And... He said, what could you possibly object to in us declassifying that document? And there was a short silence, and he said, I don't know. Give me a couple minutes, and I'll think of something. All right? And so this was the kind of arrogance that these guys had because nobody had ever challenged them before. When the FBI went in, when the FBI went in, Thunheim said, put this document on the screen and says, we're going to declassify this thing. Okay. Unless you can prove to us that it's a dangerous document, we're going to declassify this. And the FBI guy who came in, the liaison came in with their lawyer and the liaison goes to the lawyer. Can they really do that? And the lawyer says, yes, they can. Okay. And so this is the kind of resistance you got. Okay. See, because, and this is all always worth going through again. The Freedom of Information Act, with that law, it's very limited because you don't get into legislative bodies. It's only the executive branch and you can't let loose CIA operational files. Right. But the, the biggest problem with the Freedom of Information Act is that the plaintiff is fighting to declassify a document that he doesn't see. He can't see. He can't read. Okay. But he has to bear the burden of proof why it should be declassified. Whereas with the review board, it was the agency where the document came from, they had to bear the burden of proof as to why it should not be declassified. And any lawyer will tell you that's that's a very big shift, okay, as far as a legal proceeding goes, all right? So this was what was so revolutionary about the review board, and this is why it got so many documents out. Unfortunately, they really didn't have enough time they had to ask for a couple of extensions, okay? And because George H.W. Bush did not want to constitute the board. And so what George H.W. Bush did, 
he did not make his picks, his appointments to the five person board. And therefore, when Clinton came in, he essentially had to start all over. Okay. And they finally got going, but that wasted. And I'm sure this was the objective that wasted about a year. Okay. And so they had to ask for an extension. I believe they requested two extensions. All right. So they had about four years, but the problem was that the review board was understaffed. Okay. They were understaffed in, in every possible way. And now we've learned through the declassified review board documents that there were some people in there who were, let us say, not very zealous about doing what they should have been doing. All right. And that's as far as I'm going to go on that particular subject. All right. But uh, Jim, Jim, uh, very quickly, uh, as far as the actual composition of the ARRB, I was uh, surprised when reading the interviews, which supplement the uh, transcripts of both the two-hour version of the documentary and the expanded four-hour version of the documentary, uh, that the people on the board, the people who were selected for the ARRB, did not believe that there had been a conspiracy or a cover-up. I think for people that might be inclined to accuse the ARRB of uh, conspiracy mongering, to coin a term, uh, that would certainly set that to rest. Uh, can you expand on that for us? I was surprised to read that. Yes. From the sources that I had uh, inside the board, okay, um, this is what they ended up telling me, that no one on the board None of the people that were picked by Clinton to be on the board believed that Kennedy had been killed as a result of a conspiracy, which is really saying something, I believe, considering we're talking 1994, okay? This is 31 years later, all right? And none of them believe, and none of them really believed that there was a designed cover-up they believed that it was simply a matter of outdated laws, okay, that um and, and laziness as far as uh certain NARA and certain institutions went that had failed to produce these documents. And so they considered themselves to simply be a declassification center. That's essentially what they considered, for instance, if you read their report on the very first page, I believe, when they're talking about the movie JFK, they refer to it as mostly fiction, okay, which is not true. And in fact, what this tells me is that the people on the board didn't read their own declassified documents, okay, because, because as we did, as we, you and I did, we did a 25-part series on the documents that were declassified about New Orleans, which essentially bore out what Jim Garrison was doing, all right? And I also believe they didn't follow. See, they were allowed to do 
special investigations. In other words, they were allowed to go a little bit beyond the declassification process and explore paradoxes in the evidence. All right. You know, things that were troubling, that there seemed to be two ways to look at something. Well, one of the ones they did, and they spent a lot of time on this, I mean, a lot of time on this, is the autopsy evidence. All right. And the review board discovered some very, very interesting stuff. All right. Um, let me give you one example. In the House Select Committee report, I think in volume seven, page 37, uh, you'll see a clause that says that the people at the Bethesda morgue that night, the place where Kennedy's body was taken to, did not see a big hole in the back of Kennedy's skull as the people at Parkland Hospital did. And since they had the body much longer than Parkland Hospital did, they are probably correct, and there was no big hole gaping wound in the back of Kennedy's head. But what happens, of course, and this is one of the best parts of our movie, we had people like Gary Aguilar, who had read all these documents, and Doug Horn, who had interviewed some of these witnesses. And lo and behold, the people at Bethesda saw this same gaping hole in the back of Kennedy's head that the people at Parkland did. It's something like 42 witnesses, all right, saw this. Now, I don't have to tell your audience, because you probably talked about this yourself. You know, when bullets come into a head or skull or a body, they make what we call small penetrating wounds of entrance. Because they go through the skull or the body and they they have to fight their way through all this blood and tissue and sometimes organs, when they blast their way out as an exit, it's usually bigger, much bigger than the entrance wound. So this is strongly indicative of what everybody's been saying for about 50-some years, that Kennedy was struck from the front. Okay. Well, one of the things, Jim, when we get into the uh, piece by piece, maybe that's a grim word <laughs> under the circumstances, when we get into analysis of the autopsy evidence, the tissue slides, and the various machinations by people who were involved with the forensic slash medical evidence. Uh, we will go through the various obfuscations, uh, the deceptions that were taken. I, I Perhaps this would fall under the category of full disclosure. When reading JFK Revisited, Jim, and this is in no size, shape, form or manner to cast aspersions on the medical slash forensic evidence or to impugn it in any way. But I found myself having to really focus my attention. I found myself uh, becoming really impatient with a pedantic review of the detail. In the documentary, in JFK Revisited, the aforementioned Dr. Gary Aguilar hit the nail on the head. <laughs> I think that's a really bad um, uh, 
choice of words on my part, maybe only too appropriate, but he talked about Kennedy's head exploding right. at the time of the headshot, which right. it did. When looking at some of the still frames from the Zapruder film, whereas the grass in back of Kennedy's limousine was a brilliant green in most of them, when the headshot takes place, when Kennedy's head explodes, it really is more of a brownish color because of the blood droplets from Kennedy's exploding head. He literally, as Jackie said, quote, they shot his head off, unquote. Right, right. And it, it explodes all over. So anyone who claims... And, and, and well, Dave, I, I hate to interrupt, but I think everybody, when you see that look of almost Greek horror on Jackie's face, when she looks over at her husband, you know, with all the blood and gore, I mean, that's one of the most shocking. Can you imagine seeing your that happen to your husband or your wife right in front of your face like that? I mean, Jesus, it's terrifying when you look at it. It is uh, a grim thing, and I can certainly understand how the television audience in 1975, watching the Zapuda film on the aforementioned Geraldo Rivera show, would have said, basically, and I, since this is going to be on the radio, I can't, uh, <laughs> I can't use the kind of words that I would like to use. Uh, they basically said, uh-uh, this will right. not work. Right. They basically said, this is a bunch of BS. <laughs> well, it, it obviously is. Uh, yeah. the uh-huh. official version of the assassination is absolutely ludicrous. Yeah. In all of its manifestations, we we went through in very pedantic fashion back in 2018 and 2019 just uh, some of the fundamentals of the Garrison case plus Oswald. If one simply takes the very genesis of the chain of events, and that is Lee Harvey Oswald, the outspoken Marxist ideologue in the United States Marine Corps in the late 1950s, I mean, that is completely beyond the pale. That is not mm-hmm. even remotely credible. It would no. be credible today, and it sure as hell wasn't credible then. And the rest of the official version is equally ridiculous. So I was very glad to see Gary Aguilar mention that Kennedy's head was blown off because when reviewing the, the forensic evidence, the slides, the x-rays of uh, the wound vectors and so forth. Again, not in any way to cast aspersions on that or to impugn the integrity of the material. But I found myself, again, getting very impatient with that. Now, back to the ARRB. Uh, Judge Tunheim said that one of the areas of resistance that he made, that he met, that the ARRB met was the apparent belief on the part of various agencies that they were tasked with uh, declassifying the documents of. Uh, they simply thought that they could wait the ARRB out. Uh, if you would review for us again the time that was allocated and what they had to do. All right. The, the finally, after George. H.W. Bush um, 
left office, Clinton came in, all right? And since the clock had run out, and I'm sure that's exactly what George H.W. Bush wanted to happen, okay, Clinton had to start all over. So it took him a while to go ahead and sort through the legislation and to set up, you know, a group to advise him on who he should pick to go ahead and man the board, all right? And so what they did is they took names from, like, say, the American Historical Society, from the uh, the group that runs librarians and archivists, okay, uh, the ABA and things like that. And they went through this nominating process. And this took, this took about a year. All right. So in other words, what should have up, been up and running in 1992 was not up and running until 1994. And like I said, the clock was ticking once, uh, once Clinton said that he was going to go ahead and sign the law and, and go ahead and, and make the nominees. All right. And so they had to ask for, I believe, two extensions. All right. In order to get a modicum of their work done. All right. And, but they didn't get anywhere near the time and the money and the personnel that they really needed. All right. And the other thing is, as you mentioned, and as we mentioned in the film, I think we got Tonheim to talk about this. You know, I think Oliver asked him, you know, should there have been a time limit at all? And that's a very good question. And I think Tonheim agreed with Oliver that there shouldn't have been. And because, like you said, you know, once there's a time limit, then the FBI or the CIA or State Department knows, hey, they're going to be out of here. We can just stonewall them, you know, and I'm sure that's what a lot of them did. I'm sure that's what the strategy was. All right. And what happened is a lot of the stuff that they couldn't get to, they labeled rather arbitrarily NBR, which means not believed relevant. All right. Now, Dave, I ask you, does a document that say the mayor of Dallas Roll Cabell, a CIA asset from 1959. That's not relevant to the Kennedy case. His brother, General <laughs> C.T. His brother, General C.T. Cabell, was fired by J. He was one of the top CIA officials. He was fired by JFK along right. with Richard Bissell and uh, Alan Dulles himself uh, in per- pursuant to the Bay of Pigs. So yeah, that. That is only too relevant. Yeah, right. Exactly. But but that's what they did in order to get the stuff off the plate. They labeled a lot of these documents NBR. And they were not declassified until years later. You know, like I think that particular one was 2016. Okay. And so, you know, so this is, you know, this is the way your government works. All right. They, they do not... They do not want to give up their turf to anyone. All right. It doesn't matter 
It doesn't matter if it's a, a presidentially appointed committee either. That's the way, that's the way it works inside the Beltway. Uh, something we should perhaps, uh, mention. We were talking about George H.W. Bush. He was, of course, president from 1988 to 1992, including in 1991 when JFK came out. And CIA headquarters is named for him. Plus, there are a number of books that uh, mention his behavior in connection with the JFK assassination, such as uh, Into the Nightmare by Joseph McBride. So when we're talking about George H.W. Bush, who dragged his feet with regard to staffing the ARRB, he was not somebody who was divorced from the dynamics of the situation. Mm Mm-hmm. And, Not uh, at all. Not at all. So, again, it, it, it is only too relevant, I think. Uh, now, one of the things that Judge Tumheim speaks about, uh, in addition to the agency simply attempting to wait the ARRB out, he mentions active resistance by various agencies, including the CIA. They did not want to release documents. And you already mentioned that that remarkable encounter with a CIA uh, officer who said there must be a reason not to release the document, but he just couldn't think of it. Right. Uh, what are you in the position to tell us about the recalcitrance of the agency with regard to the ARRB? Yeah, see, what happened is that... Tonheim talks about this relationship they had with the CIA. And he said, and I don't know if this is in the film or not, okay, uh, he said they didn't want to give us anything. You know? So in other words, they had to go to the map with the CIA. Okay? They really had to go ahead and pull rank and say, look, we're going to declassify this. All right? Whether you want, whether you like it or not. All right. And and so what happened is that when you have to do that time after time after time after time, okay, then that makes what should have been a much easier process, much more difficult and much longer. And I believe that really was their strategy. Now, give you an example. There's a guy named George Joanitas, who's a very interesting character. Jefferson Morley has done a lot of good work on George Joannidis. All right. And the ARB requested his file. And the CIA said, all we have on George Joannidis is a personnel file. In other words, this will only tell you like his retirement qualifications. Okay. Where he was stationed. Okay. His family, et cetera. Well, it turned out that they lied. They lied, okay? And just like they lied to the House Select Committee about George Joannidis not being active in 1963, they lied to the ARB about the file that they had, all right? And so this is why Jefferson Morley had to go through this, I think, nine-year ordeal, okay, trying to sue the CIA to get every last document out about George Joannidis, who's a very important character, Because he's the guy 
who was handling the Cuban exile group, the DRE, at the request of Richard Helms in New Orleans in the summer of 1963. And I'm sure I don't have to go through all the very weird stuff that Lee Harvey Oswald did in the summer of 1963 in New Orleans. But this is what I mean. And this is why it's so difficult for the public to understand just how ridiculous this gets. You know, like, who's running the country? That's the question it comes down to. And the answer is it ain't us. Now, uh, very quickly, Jim, filling in some details that we've spoken about in the past. Uh, first of all, Joe Amides' name, J-O-A-N-N-I-D-E-S. He, in addition to running the DRE, Carlos Springer's group, for the CIA, he was the liaison between the agency and the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And we noted, you mentioned Jefferson Morley and his nine-year FOIA suit, but we'll learn more about Joe Amides. Uh, that was turned down by appellate court judge Brett Kavanaugh just before he was nominated to the Supreme Court. Um, CIA records on Oswald, which were the uh, province of James Jesus Angleton, what released. Can you expand on that for us, Jim? Well, this is a very, very interesting subject because the most revealing records about the CIA Oswald file did not come out till 2005. All right. And that was where the, it was discovered by the House Select Committee that the Oz, well, first of all, let me say this. It's always been the case that A, number one, the CIA didn't have very many files on Oswald and B, uh, that uh, they really didn't know very much about him. Well, it turns out that the CIA had literally hundreds of pages of documents on Oswald. Um, and they followed him all the way up until I believe November the 14th, 1963. They knew what he, what he was doing and where he was going. All right. And so what happened is that the HSCA found out something very interesting that the Oswald file the first documents coming in when he goes ahead and defects to the Soviet Union, these did not come in to the office where they should have come in at. They went into something called the Office of Security instead of the Soviet Russian Division. Right? And the House Select Committee uh, was very puzzled by this. And so they began to question people all right, about what had happened. And the other question they had is, not only did they go to the wrong place, there was no 201 file opened. The 201 file is the most common file that there is in the CIA. It can be created for any number of reasons. Certainly a guy who goes to the Soviet Union and says in their embassy there, the American embassy, that he might give them secrets to the U-2 that would be enough to open up a 201 file on somebody. All right. So there were all kinds of reasons to open up a 201 file on Oswald, but it wasn't opened up for 13 months after he defected. And so they were very puzzled by this. Why did it go to the wrong place? And why was there no 201 file opened? All right. 
And so they investigated this all the way until the end of their term, which I believe is November of 1978, all right? And they finally found out a very, very, and by the way, this was, I believe this was so interesting and so powerful that it was not put in the HSCA report that was finally printed, I believe, in the summer of 79. What happened was that when they talked to one CIA officer who was actually in charge of the office of security at that time, he said, in the CIA, the first gate you come to is mail logistics. If the client has already talked to mail logistics, mail logistics will only send those documents, no matter how many they are of them, to that certain client, okay, bypassing the other departments. If you send documents to the Office of Security, that's a dormant place. They will not open a 201 file. Okay, they're not the kind of office that will open a 201 file. What this indicates then is, and I believe it's very important, that from the beginning, somebody was rigging Oswald's file from the very beginning. And all the other stuff we found out about Oswald, for example, the CIA had a crusade against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee that was being run by David Phillips and James McCord at the beginning, all right, that the FBI had a campaign against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee that was being run by Carter DeLoach, all right? These very high officers in these intelligence places are running campaigns against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which Oswald has all the indications of being an agent provocateur, the stuff that he's doing in the streets of New Orleans. And as you said earlier, okay, he runs into Carlos Bringier, who's being run in turn by George Joannidis, who the CIA has lied about at least two different occasions. All right, so this is all to me so much interest about Oswald, so interesting about Oswald, that it's sort of, you know, now we really have the documentation. Okay. Everybody suspected this was happening. And now we have a lot of paperwork and circumstantial and direct evidence to prove it. And by the way, do you know when those documents came out about the House Select Committee investigation into the CIA file on Oswald? They didn't come out till 2005. Let me say that again. 2005. That's sickening, you know? And one of the things, too, Jim, by 2005, so many other things, uh, not only September 11th, but the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and so many other things had eclipsed that in the public's mind. So that not only the delay in terms of the actual time frame, but the uh, busy cognitive political landscape that in which that was released uh, would have diminished its importance. Right, you're exactly correct. And I believe that was part of the strategy. Uh, in uh, our 25 one-hour interviews about Destiny Betrayed, uh, we spoke about Jim Garrison's successor 
as DA of New Orleans. That was a guy named Harry Connick. His son, Harry Connick Jr., is a well-known pop singer. Uh, when we spoke about Harry Connick, we also spoke about him destroying documents that had pertained or were part of Jim Garrison's investigation of the Kennedy assassination. And the ARRB discovered that uh, those documents apparently had not been destroyed. Tell us what they found out and about the uh, New Orleans DA office, Maverick, who uh, then comes into play. Harry Connick succeeded Jim Garrison as the DA of the, of the parish of New Orleans. All right. And Harry Connick was the liaison from the Justice Department to the trial of Clay Shaw. Let me say that again. He was the liaison from the Justice Department at the trial of Clay Shaw, which tells you a lot, I believe, of how he got in there and why. He was not an, 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 an he was not an objective <laughs> observer. No, no, not in the least. Well, I guess you could say he had skin in the game. That again was probably a poor choice of words. Now, I went down and talked to Harry Connick in about 1994. I was actually in his office. And I brought with them some House Select Committee documents that said he had a file cabinet of Jim Garrison's stuff. He was surprised by this. Okay, very, very surprised. He called in his assistant and he said, we still have that stuff. And the guy said, yeah, we do. We have a four drawer file cabinet full of stuff left over from the Garrison investigation. I actually asked him for this stuff, but he said, no, I can only give it to an official body. So I told the ARB about this. And the ARB went ahead and requested the documents. Well, it turned out that there was an assistant under Connick, okay, uh, who went on television at around this time, okay, and he said, that Connick had requested to him that he incinerate documents from the Garrison investigation. All right. And he said, I didn't want to do it. So I brought them to my garage and they're still there. All right. And it was later found out that the incineration project was not just confined to this guy, private investigator named Gary Raymond. Okay. That, Connick had ordered certain garrison files to be destroyed. All right. So now with his back up against the wall, he refused to give over this file cabinet. Okay. And the ARB had to go to court. Okay. And this took several months. All right. To get the file cabinet from Harry Connick. Can you imagine this? I mean, this is incredible, you know, an alleged officer of the judiciary system in Louisiana who won't turn over evidence to an official body. But that's what happened. And in all probability, Harry Connick was not an objective observer. Again, the, the uh, Justice Department position that he occupied as liaison to the Clay Shaw trial, I think, is uh, more than a little informing. So, in other words, the documents that Harry Connick ordered destroyed were not destroyed. No, there were, some of them were. 
Some of them were. Okay. Uh, because, because that we found out from people working in that office that he had ordered other file cabinets destroyed and they were destroyed. So this is why I always say as good as I could make Destiny Betrayed, the second edition, which I went over with you, we're never going to know what Garrison really had. And this is one of the serious problems with it because Connick had some of it incinerated. Okay. It's, it's a real tragedy of history, I believe, you know, but that's the way, you know, you know, as they say, you know, that's the way the cookie crumbles and that's what happened. That is the way that uh, cookie crumbled as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So the ARRB then did come into at least a portion of the New Orleans DA archive that Harry Connick had wanted to destroy. They they got the the cabinet in Connick's office, and they got the records out of Gary Raymond's garage. That's what they got. And uh, so at, at least partially, uh, the record was preserved, but a lot of it was, in fact, destroyed. Yeah. Oh, let me add one other thing just to be, you know, complete. They got what was at Garrison's house when he passed on, okay, because he had taken some of them with him. So they got that stuff also. Uh, yeah, something that... Uh, We'll open up a vista that we will explore at great length in future interviews. And that is another agency that Judge Tonheim says was openly recalcitrant to the ARRB was the Secret Service. And given the word uh, about five minutes from the end of the program, can you tell us briefly about the Secret Service, and then we'll fill us in in much greater detail in future interviews. The Secret Service actually came in for open criticism from the ARB for being so uncooperative, all right? And they talked about this in their final report. They said, knowing that the ARB was going to request certain documents from their archives. Knowing that in advance, they went ahead and incinerated some of the most important documents that the ARB was going to request. And as we mentioned in the film, all right, and we mentioned in the book also, it's a little bit more complete in the book, um, some of these actually pertained to the year of 1963. All right. Now I don't have to tell you how important that is because as anybody who reads the book or sees the film will know, Dallas was only the last and successful attempt on Kennedy's life. There were at least two prior to that and the Chicago plot which is very, very important in understanding this, those are a set that the Secret Service got rid of, okay, which is really unbelievable. Uh, the uh, Abraham Bolden was uh, one of the Secret Service agents who was attempting to 
uh, get that information to be more uh, diligently pursued. We'll talk about Abraham Bolden, what happened with him, uh, Elmer Moore's uh, curious behavior, and the particulars of the Secret Service with regard to the Tampa plot, the Chicago plot, things that happened uh, in Dallas and so forth. Uh, Jim, we are almost out of time. Tell us about uh, Black Ops Radio. Tell us about Kennedy'sandKing.com. Tell us about where people can get the DVDs of JFK Revisited and the book. All right. Uh, I'm a semi-regular guest on Leno Sanic's show out of Vancouver, Black Op Radio, which airs on Thursday nights. And the um, book, JFK Revisited, you can get at several outlets. I think Abbey Books has it, Barnes & Noble has it, and, of course, uh Amazon has it. The DVD set, this is unbelievable. We went, we're still in the top 10 list. We're number seven this week. Okay. And the, the best sellers for documentaries at Amazon. So in other words, three months afterwards, remember, but remember Dave, nobody's interested in the Kennedy assassination. All right. We're still in the top 10. All right. Uh, and my website is kennedysandking.com which we cover all four assassinations of the 60s, JFK, Malcolm, King, and RFK. And we'll be talking about Robert Kennedy and some of the things that uh, pertain to his views on his brother's assassination later on in our interviews. I also want to mention that I'm doing a Patreon site. I do three one-hour, often one, more than one-hour talks per week. And every other week, we're doing Zoom Q&A sessions. And something that we're going to begin doing is periodically visiting with other researchers on those Zoom Q&A sessions. And Jim uh, Eugenio, my guest this evening, will be one of those in uh, interviews to come. So that is about all we have time for for this uh, program. You have been listening to For the Record Program number 1268. Interview number seven with Jim Eugenio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on October 19th of the year 2022 as another lawsuit uh, mandating the release of the documents has just been filed. And uh, I want to thank you for listening and for Jim Eugenio. Have a good night.